it is amazing how in the wake of the events of, of 9-11 five years ago that we continue to reapproach that event uh, from all kinds of different angles. Not only can we uh, continue to study the, the more direct and e- immediate events of that terrible day, but it seems that more and more fascinating stories just to the side, just to the periphery, uh, are, are coming to light. And there are all sorts of ways, uh, probably not really anticipated at the time, in which all kinds of different people's lives were affected in, in quite profound ways. And uh, such is the case, I think, in a really wonderful book which I have enjoyed reading called Little Chapel on the River, A Pub, a Town, and the Search for What Matters Most. It's not really at all a book about 9-11, except that the events of 9-11 are what thrust the author, Gwendolyn Bounds, into the heart of this uh, particular story. Uh, Gwendolyn Bounds, at at the time of 9-11, was uh, a writer based in New York City, and those events on 9-11, in effect, displaced her for a time, and they ended up displacing her in, in an ultimately wonderful way into a a small little community uh, in New York State, uh, the little town of Garrison. And it is there that she found a a wonderful little pub uh, where she made some very good friends and and learned some really interesting life lessons. And then wrote this book about it called Little Chapel on the River. Gwendolyn Bounds is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And uh, she joins us for the next few minutes to... uh, talk about her book, which has been released in paperback by Harper. Gwendolyn Bounds, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Hi, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, let's talk for just a moment, if we can, about September 11th, 2001, and uh, the way in which that event affected you most directly that day. Um, first of all, those events unfolded very close to to where you lived at that time. It's true, and I, I think, as you pointed out earlier, you know, we're all sort of figuring out how those events affected us, and I, I think you, as well as I, and anyone, all your listeners probably remember where they were and, and what they were doing that morning when, when they learned of the attacks. I personally happened to be in the shower uh, in my apartment building, which was directly across from the World Trade Center towers, and was literally rinsing the conditioner out of my hair when the first plane struck. Now, of course, I did not know at the time that it was a, a plane striking. We didn't have that sort of uh, background to think about terrorism back then. I mean, things like bin Laden, sleeper cells, these were foreign words to us um, that morning. But simply got out of the shower thinking someone had dropped something very heavy upstairs, and my phone rang, and it was a friend of mine who lived next door, and he says, you're not going to your doctor's appointment, are you? And I said, well, of course I am. Why not? And he said, didn't you hear that? A plane just hit the World Trade Center. Uh, went to the window, looked out, and indeed saw smoke pouring from one of the towers and people yelling from the ground beneath. Uh, still wasn't sure, of course, what it was. Turned on uh, the TV, CNN, and uh, saw the plane fly across the screen, the second plane, and uh, kind of and then at the same time heard in real time it going over the, my head, uh, over the, head, the, the top of the apartment building, and, uh, and then, it, of course, the slam of the impact. Um, and from there, the day unfolded as you and everyone uh, is probably seen on TV of fleeing, and, and, and that's sort of how it started. It's really, among many things, interesting to think about that, that experience of, of watching uh, an event unfold uh, on the TV screen and in your own life. 
I mean, that had to be such a strange sensation. You know, it was when we were in the middle of it, of course, we had no idea what was going on. I mean, we, we were watching on TV. We saw the, another of the planes hit the, plane hit the Pentagon, and you began to think terrorism. Uh, the only thing that was innate at that point was, for me at least as a reporter, was to carry a reporter's pad with me when I left, the, left my apartment building that morning. Uh, and it was not until I was able with uh, the people I was sort of, I guess, fleeing, for lack of a better word, with that morning until we were able to make it uptown and out of the fray that we had any context for it and even knew that the towers had fallen because, of course, standing at the end of the island while the, the towers came down, we were covered in the relentless white dust storm that you've, you've, you've seen by now, obviously, many times over on, on the television. And there were rumors, you know, some people were saying, well, a tip of the tower is bl- broken off. And... Of course, everyone was saying to themselves, well, that's not possible. The World Trade Center, you can't break off a piece of the World Trade Center. And, uh, of course, much, much more and had happened to that. And, and we had no idea until we got uptown and had no idea how lucky we were. I mean, we were close, but obviously we were among the most fortunate down there that day because, because we eventually did get out and, and, and survived. When you describe the, that, that, uh, that experience of, of, of fleeing, you said together we joined the throngs fleeing south along the river, racing from something we cannot see amid the abandoned baby carriages, high-heeled shoes, and unshaven men scurrying by in their curiously patterned boxers, briefcases tucked under one arm. I mean, I I hadn't really stopped to think about what that would feel like to, to flee, in effect, from an unseen and at that point unknown enemy, which had to make it even more frightening and bewildering. The memories of that day, for me at least, are mo- they're, they're snapshots. They're sort of these Polaroid snapshots of the images, you know, the, those big clouds billowing around the bend when the first tower fell and, and kind of being engulfed, but also sounds. And I think it was the sounds of planes roaring overhead in, in, down, in downtown Manhattan, which were among the most frightening because, of course, we had had two planes already hit the towers. We knew that. But then when you heard more planes, we didn't realize they were our own military, of course, coming in. Uh, what you thought was that it was was just more, I guess, what it, terrorism to come. And I, I think at one point I remember sort of putting a, a leg over a railing, thinking that the Hudson to jump in the Hudson River would be safer than to stay among all of this. And uh, some some folks obviously pulled me back. Mm. And it's just one of those moments where you you don't know, as you said. Well, and it, it's it's interesting because actually just ahead of this, maybe I mean when when the explosion has first occurred and you're first trying to sort it out, you, you really go into uh, reporter mode. Right. Um, you say this is a news event. We do not know to be scared. Right. And of course, very, right. very soon you did find ways to, uh, to, to, to be scared. One thing that offered you a, an odd sort of sense of solace early on that day was when you end up hopping aboard uh, some sort of white delivery truck, which right. is loaded with Gatorade and so on. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Well, at the very tip of Manhattan, if you went if you went north out of Manhattan that day, it was a better way to go. Uh, unfortunately, just the way we were being directed, we ended up going south. And so we were at the tip of the island, and many people were fleeing in, uh, into a tunnel to try and get out. Uh, and going into a tunnel didn't seem quite as is palatable at that point in time with with so many masses of panicked people and we happened to see a white delivery truck that was essentially like a food vendor truck they park downtown they sell food bagels sandwiches to all the people working downtown 
And we climbed over a barrier, and this man was pulling away in his truck, and there were three of us, and we knocked on the door of his truck, and he had it locked, obviously, because he was scared of being overtaken by the mobs of people down there. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, Earl Norton, sort of begged this man. He said, sir, there are just three of us. Please let us in. You could see the hesitancy on his face, but, you know, he kindness went out, and he let us in, and we rode uptown uh, on the streets in that passing out uh, his Gatorade and his Snapple and any drinks he, he had in there in his truck to all the people who were pouring in mass uptown and were covered in all of this dust. If you had contacts, you couldn't see, and uh, people had children, and they were walking, and they were just grateful to have any kind of liquid to wash what had been raining down upon them off of their face. And this gentleman, George Spurgis, he was uh, this, this, this gentleman from Queens, and people were offering him money, uh, and he would not take a cent from anyone. And I think that act of watching his simple uh, gesture of kindness in that way, and also the act of doing something ourselves, however tiny it was to be passing out these things, uh, these drinks, was, as you noted, uh, I think quite astutely, a little bit of solace in, in that day. Right. You said, we are, we are glad for the task, the sense of purpose it offers. Right. You know, right. it's just kind of interesting. It just, just dawned on me that this opening of the book is written completely in present tense. Yes. Um, I wonder uh, what what motivated you to to uh, to make that that choice. I think that uh, you know when you think on uh, back on a day like that, and again for many people across the country and the world, uh, when something is that profound, uh, you tend to think about it in the present tense when you when you think about it, uh, and to write about it in the past isn't. I mean, you're sort of setting this. You're you're trying to relay what that day was like, and I I think just in terms of present tense, it still feels very present tense in some ways, and especially for New Yorkers, but I think for many people who uh, were very touched and struck by this day that did change the way we live as Americans, um, probably forever. Speaking of change, of course, much ends up changing about your life and something as basic as where you are going to live. And I think what's quite interesting, too, as you describe the events of that day, is when you actually kind of begin with this notion of of different layers of of concerns of kind of overarching issues and concerns and then a lot of the small kind of mundane details which sort of occupy us on on a different level and uh and then to have something so cataclysmic occur which just wipes so much of that away right right i mean that can happen you know, a car wreck can change everything. I mean, we we always are sort of, uh, you know, obsessing about the little things because what else do you do? You can't walk around thinking, you know, something big and, and terrible is going to happen to me today. But uh, I was always struck. There was a scene in the movie, I think, Castaway with Tom Hanks. I think that's the name of it, where he's on the plane right before the plane goes down. And he's, I think there's a cuticle that's bothering him or uh, a hangnail in a bathroom. And then, of course, his entire world, that's the last thing he's doing of any sort of, that's normal before his whole world changes. And, you know, that morning of September 11th, of course, I was worried. I had been at the beach. I was worried, you know, my toenails weren't painted. I had a lunch that I had to go to. How was I possibly going to fit everything into my oh-so-busy day? And, uh, you know, should I cancel my lunch? I needed to go jogging. I needed to go to the, you know, the gym, that sort of thing. And, and of course, not knowing. I need to call my mother back, you know, and not knowing what was, was to come. And uh, yeah. I, I think about that often, just sort of the, the, the thinking of the little things, as you say, before, before this very big thing unfolded. If I may read this this portion, you say, um, 
this is just after that second plane and its impact and and uh and events begin from there uh and then the slam of the impact across the street a bit of panic now knowing that two planes can't be an accident throwing on our clothes grabbing our wallets reporters notebooks and cell phones the little decisions we'll regret I chose open-toed black sandals. Contacts already in. Catherine leaves her glasses behind. Running down ten flights of stairs, not even bothering to deadbolt the door. Because, of course, we'll be home for dinner. Of course, Catherine's 14-year-old cat, Stoli, will be better off here than outside in the chaos. Minds still glibly tuned to the way life is, with its reason and predictability. It never occurs to us to look back and register home warm and alive with our presence one more time. I mean, in an instant like that, yeah. you just don't have any way of knowing just how profoundly life is going to change. No, and I mean, you know, obviously everybody that day, again, we were, we were very, very, very lucky compared to the, the people who, you know, it goes without saying, who were actually in the Trade Center. Uh, and I think anyone within that space downtown that day, you're processing as you go. I mean, we can look back now and say, um, we now, now if you hear a loud bang, uh, you may think terrorism. It may be the first thing you think, but again, as of that day, that wasn't the first thing anyone was really thinking. Um, perhaps we should have been given, you know, what had happened at the Trade Center in prior years, but it just wasn't the case. And so you're kind of processing as you go and making some decisions which are good and some decisions which aren't so good. And um, uh, again, fortunately, you know, we we were able to get out, um, uh, which you know, obviously, many people could not. We're speaking with Gwendolyn Bounds, and we were are speaking with her about her book, Little Chapel on the River, a pub, a town, and the search for what matters most. I mean, judging from all that we've talked about so far, I mean, we, do, we see millions of miles away from a quaint little pub, uh, so we need to make that connection now from the uh, terrible events of September 11th to what ultimately draws you to this little place called Garrison, New York. Uh, tell us how that connection was first made it was uh, a logistical uh, situation more than anything else uh, the apartment building where we had been living was closed for several months just because uh, because of damages a piece of the trade center had gone through it and uh, in the course of sort of sleeping on friends couches and floors and so forth um, we're looking for a more semi-permanent place to to be for a while and a close friend had a house in this um, in the Hudson Highlands. Is this area along the Hudson River? Uh, New York is called. It's a very bucolic, um, again, as the name would suggest, mountainous region, um, rural in feel. A friend had a country home up there and said, "Why don't you come stay for a little while?" Well, on the way back from this visit, our, uh, to, to actually go back to New York City and meet a real estate agent to look for a place in Manhattan, um, our friend said, well, "You know, why don't you just stop in for this little tiny at this little tiny Irish pub?" And country store right here on the river by the train tracks and just just have one beer and of course typical type a personality i was like no time no time gotta get back gotta gotta, gotta find a gotta find another place and she's like trust me just one beer uh well uh, we walk in and there it you could not have um this place is like frozen in time from the 1950s and the wood floors are beaten so soft they almost feel like dirt and uh all the way to the back and this uh green walled green ceiling a uh, little Irish with this little Irish pub, which seems tacked onto the end of this place, you know, kind of almost as an afterthought, as, as, as I've always described it, and leans over into the Hudson River. There are workmen uh, in plaid shirts and boots sort of surrounding the bar. We can't really, the three women of us, can't really even squeeze in. 
feeling slightly uncomfortable, but right behind the bar was this blue-eyed, smallish Irishman who had kind of a devilish look in his eye, and he turns to one of the patrons standing there, and he says, well, Jesus Christ, Mikey, why don't you move over there and let these ladies get in here? And he moves over, and he says, and my name is Jim, Jim Guinan, and uh, Jim Guinan is the proprietor of this store, and and pub, uh, which is named Guinan's after him. And so we slip in there and begin listening to his stories. And one beer turned into several beers, and that became an afternoon. And I remember thinking this was the calmest place on earth, and that if we could only just sit there, as silly as this sounds, for a little while, that everything would be okay. Mm. And uh, ended up moving there 11 days later. You you say in recounting that, that, that day, there is, they're in the midst of so much that is foreign I find myself strangely calm. Yes. You actually mentioned the fact that, that this place, uh, I don't know so much if it was Guinan's or maybe just that, that, that small community in that beautiful setting, but it reminded you of, of, uh, of a locale from your North Carolina childhood. It's, it's true, although I, I don't think I quite picked up on that at the time. Sometimes our uh, our conscious mind is a little slow to recognize what our subconscious is doing, but uh, I spent an awful lot of time on the North Carolina coast at a very small fish camp that my grandmother, my grandfather and grandmother had uh, at a very rural town. It was just a trailer. It wasn't anything fancy. Just a trailer on the water where we fished and crabbed and things like that. And uh, and but there was a sort of calm that lingered over this place. You know, you could you could smell the rain on the river, bef- you know, as it approached and. And there were, you know, there were, were dogs that came to the door for day-old biscuits, and there was always something to do, um, even though it was, it was a very uh, uh, slow pace of life. And, and I remember sort of just being struck. I think that's, that that is part of why I was so attracted to Guinan's, because so much of Guinan's registered with me somewhere visceral, viscerally deep inside of this place in my childhood that I obviously hadn't thought about in a long time, but, but had, had very much meant an enormous amount to me. I mean, as, when we were kids, all we want to do is grow up as fast as we possibly can, and, and, and if you're in a small town, you want to get to a big town, and so forth. And, of course, I was uh, just right then craving, I think, that, that calmness that I'd had as a kid. Talking of that, uh, it's maybe just as good a time as any to talk about the title of the book, Little Chapel on the River. I mean, and this place in which you experience such calm uh, in the midst of such upheaval in your life. I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, you were inspired to, uh, to, to call it this. In fact, I think you tell us early in the book that one of the regular customers there at Guinan's christened it his Riverside Chapel. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about the way in which that, that terminology, which might strike us at first as kind of odd, yeah. in fact, fits perfectly. You have a good, good memory with the book. Uh, certainly. I mean, I was struck by it because, uh, my goodness, you know, who, who calls a pub a chapel? And I remember the very first Friday night after moving there, coming down to the bar. Friday night is the big, kind of the big night, if there is such a big night in a small town pub where everyone uh, comes down and uh, trying to work up my nerve to go in the back in the evening and have a beer and kind of coming in and only knowing one or two people, but striking up a conversation with this gentleman who had grown up in the area, had moved up to Albany, his name's 
Jim, Jim Donnery, and he'd come there with his mother, who's in her 80s. They'd come together, and, uh, and he, I remember talking to him. He had a couple of Guinnesses at that point, but, but at some point uh, he said, you know, I said, well, why do you come here? And he says, well, I, I, I always come down, you know, once or twice, uh, you know, every couple of months to, 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 go to, to go to the chapel with my mom. And I thought, oh, that's so nice. He, he comes to take his mom to church, and then he corrects me and says, you know, I call this place my Riverside Chapel. And I realized he's referring to the pub, and I kind of, Blanchel, I said, you call a pub a chapel? And uh, he looks at me, and he says, yes. He says, you know, um, I feel very blessed to be here. Uh, this is, and this is where he come. He would come to congregate. These are where the, the friends and the family he had left behind when he moved to Albany are, and he could come there and feel uh, he could feel a community and a place um, with with other people who felt the same way, and and I thought that was a lovely description at the time, and I I borrowed it and gave him full props and credit mm. for it in the book um, for the title. In the prologue, you say, folks had been congregating at Guinan's quite a while before I showed up, forty two years to be precise, which was long enough for the place to have a memory and a cast of characters as constant as the hourly trains rumbling by its windows. For them, the cramped space was far more than a pit stop on the way home. It was an extension of home itself. That's such an interesting way to, to, to look at it, because I think some people, especially people who don't frequent such places, would, would not think of it that way. They would think of it as a place that you go when you don't want to go home yet. Right, One could draw the picture that way, but right. uh, apparently the, the folks at Guinan's think of it differently. It's sort of an extended family. I mean, part of it's by virtue of the fact that Jim Guinan, the, uh, the, the gentleman, uh, the Irishman I mentioned, who, who runs the place, and his late wife, Peg, they live upstairs above the pub and, and in this sort of this old house built in the 1800s and, the, and run the, had run the country store up front for so many years. And when you, when you do your business in the place you live, by virtue of that, your home kind of becomes an extension of, of the business. And, and people who are close to you, the town people, come in and out of your kitchen kind of uh, in the same way that your children do. I mean, the children, Jim Guinan's children, would use the door of the, the store to come and go to school with all the townspeople. They didn't use their own private door. It just... It all becomes one, and I think that that carries over that sense of here is where you belong and here is a safe place, and yes, this can be your home too. That carries over to the patrons, and so people feel that it, that home is an extension um, to, to, to them, is, is extended to them as well, and by virtue of that becomes um, you know, an extension of their own home as hmm. well. You say again in the prologue, Guinan's was where they came after a death to toast and remember on holidays and birthdays to pay their respects and buy a round or two, or on a late winter afternoon when the cold wind made things lonely enough that you just needed to see a friendly face. When she was alive, Jim's wife Peg would welcome the men, scold them if their language turned rough, and offer supper to those who had nowhere else to be. Here inside this family's mismatched stucco green walls, it was always safe. Those words really jumped out at me because it... it it, it made me think of of all the bars and and taverns ac- across the country that are not safe places at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the most terrible things that can happen to people happen in in bars and 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 taverns, but but places that apparently are very very different from from this one. I think I was very struck by that too. I mean, 
while there is, is alcohol served here, it is by no means the main reason people come to this place. I mean, uh, again, uh, you know, aside from a, a few who, who uh, drink fairly regularly or heavily, it is mostly a place about congregating and people are drinking tea and coffee as much as they uh, are drinking any kind of, of beer. And, and, you know, I was, you know, as a woman, a woman going into a, a, a pub and a place that, you know, had, had a mainly male clientele, although there were some women, uh, I never once, uh, I never once felt uncomfortable or not safe there. And I think that speaks a lot. And again, I think it speaks more of what this place is, and that it is a place where people congregate. And again, your listeners and, and people all over the country and the world, think whether or not it's a, it could be a pub or it could be, uh, it could be a coffee shop, it could be uh, their church, it could be a club, a, a recreational hall, a place that they go where they know they can find someone uh, like you were saying in that passage you read, a place, uh, you know, when, when you're feeling a little bit lonely or someone to share something with. And I think that that's what guidance is about. There are little chapels everywhere across this country, and these small places make up the fabric of our nation's history. They hold our stories, and we're losing them. And I, I think that when we do, we will lose a good part of our, our nation's history. And so I think it's important to sort of see them, hopefully, and hold, and hold tight. We're speaking with Gwendolyn Bounds. We're talking about her book called Little Chapel uh, on the River. Um, One of the things that is very interesting about this place is that uh, it's, first of all, it's it's kind of an interesting mix, as I think we've already touched on. It's, It's sort of half bar, half country store. And it's a place in which there are certain ways of doing things and uh, and that's part of what gives this place its its unique and and wonderful charm. Tell us a few of those sort of idiosyncrasies about the way business is transacted at at Guinan's. Well, I think one of the first things that threw me for a loop, if you will, uh, again being someone who'd come out of the city and and someone who worked at, at a big financial newspaper, the Wall Street Journal, was uh, the first one of the first mornings there. I noticed there was a, just a pile of change in one dollar bills. Uh, with a rock holding down the $1 bill so they didn't blow away on the counter, the metal counter. And I was, I looked at that thinking, well, somebody left their money. I wasn't sure, but the change was stacked in these very interesting piles. And I watched, because the commuters would come in and out, the regular commuters, and they would take the items they wanted, their newspapers, their coffee, their, their, their bagels and, and their juice, and then they would go and they would pay and make their own change from these piles and move on, move out the door. They didn't even have to sort of, you know, other than to say hello or or throw a joke or a barb to the to the uh, to whoever's behind the counter's way. They 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 made the, the transaction themselves, and I just couldn't believe that because it was a complete honor system. And where else I had never really seen that anywhere else. And I remember saying to John Guinan, the son of of Jim Guinan, who was behind the counter, I said. Aren't you worried about people stealing? And he looks at me and he fastens his eyes hard on me and he says, "This is Guinan's," as if that's all there was to say, and that no one would ever do that. And I, as you point out, I would, that was one of the first sort of charming things that struck me uh, that I, I just never encountered before. Hmm. And um, one of those sort of, I mean, those few times when they wanted to use a cash register, it's one of those sort of <laughs> antique. Cash right. registers where you right. push the buttons down really hard and all this Only clanking occurs inside it. it. Yes. Yeah, I mean, just it's just really interesting. And I guess one of the things, I, I'm not sure if, if this is ever talked about directly in your book, but I, I, I remember once watching a documentary about the Amish 
and uh, and the point was made in this story that that the Amish have very deliberately uh, cast aside modern technology, which would speed up the process of planting or harvesting or whatever the work would be in the fields, because they saw that time spent in the fields as good time uh, of working together, and anything which would cut that time short, I mean, would 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 not be seen as as, as a blessing, but right. it, w- it would be seen as a loss of something really meaningful. And so there's been uh, th- this this deliberate choice made to, to not embrace uh, certain technology which would make life easier and would, would move it along more quickly. I, I kind of wonder, in the case of a place like Guinan's, if, if some of this somewhat antiquated way of doing things, how consciously that is being embraced or if that's just sort of the way it's happening. I mean, it's obviously it's obviously good that it's happened, but one wonders how conscious some of these choices have been over the years. Mm, that's a very interesting question. You know, I, I think uh, at first glance, one would just say that places like this are slow to change, period. I mean, someone once said someone would have to drive a train through Guinan's for it to change at all. And I think that when, when people get set in doing, what they, doing things a certain way, they, they stay that way. On the other hand, I think your point is a good one, and uh, Jim Guinan, one of the other things that, that happens at Guinan's is there are no computers, there are no calculators. Uh, Jim Guinan and all of his children are sort of math- mathematical whizzes, and they can order and tally uh, orders in their heads extraordinarily quickly. Uh, and they're not—they're just not wrong. I mean, I—you know—I used to check them because I couldn't believe it. You know, I said, "Let me add all that up," and and they were always right. And there are no sort of written bar tabs. And I think that your point that. Uh, these sort of technological advances, the point being that those put distance between them and, and their customers. I mean, that again, if you're talking about human relationships, these are things that speed us up and get us in and out faster. And the whole point about guidance is not to get out, but to stay as long as possible. And, and what I found somewhat ironic about that is that uh, we had the blackout in the Northeast, I'm sure you remember, a couple of years ago, uh, where there was no power for a while, and when the grids, sort of the, the antiquated grids um, kind of collapsed. And I remember driving from, from driving to Guinan's, and it was uh, an evening where all these Irish musicians had come down, and I kept thinking, oh, the store will be closed, they don't have any power. But I drove down to check on Jim Guinan and make sure he was all right. When I get there, not only are the musicians out playing in the dark outside the store, but they're, you know, they brought out the, the beer and the sodas and tubs of ice. And they don't need a computer to sort of run the place because they never used one to begin with. So there it is running just without lights the same way it always was. Mm. John's adding up the orders and tallying them up. And, and it didn't, you know, the, the cash register still works because it's not electric. And it didn't make a bit of difference. And they were up and going. And some of the fanciest places in New York City with all their high-tech stuff was not. So <laughs> I remember being very struck by that. That reminds me of the Amish again. And uh, sometimes when uh, the weather turns very, very wet, and uh, certain farmers can't even think about taking their heavy, fancy, modern machinery out into the fields. The Amish can be out there with their horse-drawn uh, wagons and plows because uh, they're not going to sink in that mud the way our modern machines do. It's self-reliance. I mean, I, I remember after this, uh, being in this town for a while, uh, the people I met 
we're simply just so self-reliant. And and again, you know, I'm not a I'm not an anti-technology. I certainly have my cell phone and laptops and computers and so forth that I use. But I do remember, you know, as on September 11th, when a lot of those phones weren't working and the systems were were crippling again, and 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 being very struck by the notion that you know what skills if I had to live without all this, if if things really did come down, what skills do I actually have to survive? You know, in terms of knowing how to, I guess, if it was to, to make food or a- anything. I mean, that's overstating it quite a little bit. But uh, again, I think this notion of self-reliance and being able to persevere even when all of the uh, accoutrements we have um, and the luxury we have of having these things that are supposed to make our life easier are gone. Uh, I became sort of cognizant of the fact that I probably needed to, to beef up my expertise in, in a couple of areas. Hmm. One of the things that is really, the, the, in some ways, the, the heart and soul of this book is as you acquaint us with some of the people who frequent Guinan's, uh, the frequent customers who are, are so important to the place, someone like William Fitzgerald, the very first uh, frequent customer that you uh, introduce us to. You say, I came to understand that a guy like Fitz is the lifeblood of a place like Guinan's. He's the one who always has an opinion and will offer it up about just about anything, politics, war taxes, the real problem with women. (laughs) More important, if nobody else is offering up much interesting, a guy like Fitz will provoke them until they do. Right. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about... Uh, what made him a really important fixture here in the in the interesting relationship and, and ultimately powerful connection you felt with him? I think, you know, again, as you were saying, uh, you need these places, are, you're drawn to these places because of, um, in many ways, the conversation that goes on. And someone uh, once described Guidance uh, in writing about it uh, to me as a place where red staters and blue staters can come together and agree to disagree. And having someone with an opinion like a William Fitzgerald, a Fitz as he's known, is, is a part of that. And it's almost always in, in, in good humor, and if it takes a turn and it's not such, in good, in, not such good humor, um, the next day he's in there buying the guy a beer who he might have come down a little too hard on. But it keeps the conversation lively, and he, a, a, a character like that, um, uh, in the true sense of the word, becomes part of the reason that people want to be there because you want to know what he's going to say and he's quick and he always has something to to liven up the conversation and you know for me personally uh, again as an outsider from the city and a woman you know coming here and wanting very much to be sort of a part of this small town and to to be an insider here uh, someone like Fitz who uh, eventually did take me under his wing was sort of the reason that I was one of the main reasons I was able to be accepted because it's like the good seal, the good housekeeping seal of approval in a place like that. If he trusts you, then we should trust you. Mm. And uh, I became, I mean, he became sort of almost fatherly toward me. And it doesn't, not to say that um, I didn't take my fair share of uh, teasing from him and, and dish it back the same way, but that's just a part of that dynamic and it's part of how it goes. And every single time he was in that place, um, I felt that no wrong could be done in that place because I knew that nothing, I knew he would take care of it, that he would. He was a protectorate, and uh, as, as much as he was an entertainer, uh, he was also someone who was very much um, uh, someone who, if, if everything was sort of going the wrong way, he would he would keep the peace. Hmm. One intriguing thing about the clientele of Guinan's and uh, some of these other really interesting regulars is that they seem to have been more of a mix than is sometimes the case. 
I mean, I, I, I don't frequent bars at all, but in my, in my mind, I imagine either kind of a, a, a dark bar with lots of, of old guys, or I picture some sort of kind of swinging place with loud music and a bun- bunch of young people. And I have trouble imagining uh, a lot of mixing of, of generations and backgrounds and so on. I mean, it just sort of seems like like we, we uh, tend to congregate with, with people like ourselves yes. in such places. Not always, of course, and Guinan's would be an example of just the opposite, where, in fact, it's an intriguing mix of people in terms of background and age that, that gather there. Sure, I think that's a, a, a very good point. I mean, and it stood out to me. I, I don't think I've, I mean, I've never spent much time in, in, a, in a bar uh, of any sort, be it the sort of dark kind with, with just a bunch of old guys or, or just sort of the nightclubs of New York. It's just never really been my scene. But um, the thing about Guinan's is you have your... Uh, you have your wealthy Manhattan bond trader sitting there next to your, you know, a, a blue-collar mason, and they carry out a conversation, and everyone is equal. And I cannot emphasize that enough. And I think a lot of it harkens back to the time when, again, Jim's wife, Peg, a remarkable woman by all accounts I've ever heard, uh, was there. And and her presence sort of kept this civility to the place uh, that enabled people from all walks of life to feel, feel welcome. And you could come in, and it didn't matter, you know, race, religion, what have you. You could come in, and you could feel like it was okay to be there. It was not segregated. Now, you know, I, I, again, it was. Mo- it has been over the years, the early years, mainly a male bar, but women had started to come there too, and to sort of see this place for, for what it was, and not be not be scared to be in there, um, just because you know people sometimes think, well, if this is where the men hang out, it's, women aren't welcome, and it just wasn't so. And I think that that dynamic that was set early on. Was what made it so astounding and special uh, that people could come in and be of any persuasion and be welcomed. And I think that as the book unfolds, you know, and that's why I really began to write the book was because this place, the fate of this place was hanging on the edge because Jim Guinan was very sick. And if people read the book, they'll see that. And so as the story unfolds, it begins, what will happen to this remarkable spot and what would happen to all the people um, if it is lost? Hmm. One thing which happens the longer you're at Guinan's is that you experience time, I think, so differently there than you did back in Manhattan. In fact, you say, I will come to believe that this place steals time, makes it impossible to be anywhere else punctually because of some magic grip it holds over those inside. I mean, you just enjoy so much being there. And in the next chapter, you can kind of contrast that with your sort of breathlessly hectic life uh, in Manhattan, and the constant multitasking and the and the running from place to place, and all really for the sake of your career. Yes. You weren't really involved in anything else outside of your job at all. Uh, it, it, it's kind of a sad existence which you describe, although it <laughs> seems like you enjoyed it at the time. Well, I, again, you know, I think that it happens to, to a, a lot of people, and I, I you know, you, you, you come and you get immersed in your in work, and uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with hard work at all, but I think that, you know, at least for my part, you begin to kind of forget about anything else. And if you have a cell phone or a BlackBerry, 
Uh, If you can't go out without them and you're constantly connected and checking and um, be, you know, we have all these technological gadgets to make make give us more time. But what we do is just cram more things into the time we're having. So we're always just, you know, running about. And I'm always always running about ten minutes late to everything. And I just, you know, honestly, the only way I can think to put it is I just forgot what it was like to even know how to sit still, to just sit still for a minute. And I think I learned how to do that again in Guinan's because uh, it was just such a remarkable spot to be in this little place careening over the Hudson River and so calm in a time when the world was and, and of course still is so troubled that, that I was struck by never ever thinking for one moment while I sat there about where else I should be or what else I should be doing and I just hadn't felt that way in a, in a very long time and uh, you know again it doesn't mean that you know I was going to reject everything else in my life and couldn't afford to do that frankly i mean i you know i have to earn a living like everyone else but you know we can make changes in our lives that are very very small and incremental that can make a difference we don't have to all pack up and you know dump dump our jobs and move to montana most people can't do that i sure couldn't do that but we can tweak the little tiny things and um, i think that's what i learned to do in guidance again Uh, we're speaking with gwendolyn bounds about her book called little chapel on the river as you begin to immerse yourself in this place and become kind of one of the regulars little by little. One phrase that jumped out in the book is that you said, um, as you began to, in your words, fade a little more into the woodwork, instead of being, you know, one of the, one of the women in the bar that, you know, was kind of a newcomer that kind of surprised everybody. When, when you began to just be a part of the place, you say, that's when the snapshots started to come alive. Right. Explain what you mean by that. Well, early on, I think when I was in the bar, and like many times when you first just encounter people, um, immediately you kind of uh, you you form sort of a quick quick uh, description in your head of them. You know, I mean, uh, there's the bearded guy with a deep voice who carries this change purse. Uh, there's the sort of uh, quick-witted acerbic fits, and you uh, the former federal marshal, and you just you have these descriptions based on the very little bit that you know about people. Uh, and it wasn't until finally when, you know, the guy stopped offering me a, a seat or um, when I'd just basically been around long enough that they, they weren't, uh, they, they just sort of weren't noticing me as much, which, which was a good thing in my opinion, uh, that I could sit back and watch them. And you, then their conversation patterns um, really just kind of resumed the, the, normal, the normal way they would ordinarily. And it was then that sort of the, the depth to these, these men and, and some of these women um, became very apparent to me. And that's when I got to know who they were, what they were about, what they loved, um, and all their grayness. You know, people really aren't that black and white, and gray is what makes us human. And uh, our, our, our weaknesses are as important to who we are as our strengths are. And watching that unfold was like a movie unfolding for me. You know, I, I say to people often, I could not have made these people up. I mean, they were so fascinating, and there was something extraordinary in the very ordinariness of them. And I think we as, Amer- uh, as Americans, readers, and, and everyone, we relate to that. Um, we relate to what the, real, what the real, real people are going through. It's why we, and I think it's partly why people are so fascinated with reality TV in some ways, and uh, for better or for worse. And, and so watching them uh, come alive was, was, was incredibly compelling to me, both as a person and as a writer. Hmm. One of the most intriguing sort of breakthroughs with, with Jim Guinan was when you realized early on that he was misunderstanding something about you and, uh, and the woman that often accompanied you 
uh, to this bar. That's right. Your, your life partner, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, Catherine? Catherine. 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 Uh, at the time, you know, Catherine, I mean, uh, we, had, we had been together, we were in the bar, many people knew we were a couple, but uh, Jim Guinan, uh, it came to my attention from Fitz, one of the, uh, the character we've been talking about, that Jim thought uh, Catherine was my sister. And I was like, you know, there's no way Jim thinks that. And, and uh, the bar, as I said, you know, it's a very accepting place. People, everybody knew we were together. But um, one day I was sitting back with Jim sort of watching TV, and he made a reference to, you know, asking me, How, how's your sister? And I was very confused because I'm, I'm an only child. And then I realized that Fitz was right, and he said, uh, your sister Catherine, how is she? And I sort of had this moment of like, I mean, I think it's, um, it's one of those moments where you kind of revert to being a kid, and I thought, oh my God, what if you know, what if he doesn't like me anymore? You know, even as an adult, and uh, you still still revert to that sometimes. And I just said to him very simply, I said, I said, Jim, you know, Catherine's not my sister. I said, we're together, but she's not my sister. And he looks at me, and I see the dawning on his face, and um, and he says, oh, he says, well, you know what? She's a nice girl, and that's all there was to it. And it was uh, it was an incredible moment, and. You know, I've, again, I've often had people say to me that this is where Guinans represents sort of the hope of everyone coming together because all, people from all walks of life, you know, come and ex- they're accepting of things they would never think necessarily that they would be accepting about. And uh, Jim's a remarkable man, and, and those few words said it all and said a lot about his character. Right, and you said when he began changing his question from how's your sister to and how's Catherine, you yes. said it's a slight alteration of the question but it says it all. It made all the difference, yeah. and, and again, I, I admire him. I admire him for that, and, and that's all it took. You know, this book is not only about Guinans, but it's also about small towns, small places. And one of the things that you you, you tell us is that, um, well, let me, let me read it. You, you say it so well here. You're talking about a, a tragedy which befell someone named Old Mike when his, uh, when his son was killed. And... Uh, and so it, this is a, 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 a tough tragedy, which, which really in some ways scars him to this day. And you say tragedies don't digest well in a small town. At first there's the initial wave of sympathy, which is comforting like a, a safety net. But then the weeks pass, and, and if you're a dad who's lost his son, you can't buy groceries, rent a video, or eat out at a restaurant without someone saying they're sorry or cast you a sad, knowing glance. What happened becomes part of the permanent description of you, an addendum banked in the collective memory of your friends and neighbors. You know Mike, his son died a few years back. And so moving on becomes nearly impossible unless you move out of town altogether. And old Mike is not going to do that this is home. It's such an interesting observation because at once it's both a very powerful positive thing and yet something which creates its own maybe burden or an, or or another layer of of of, of maybe difficulty un, under the surface. I, I think that's true. I mean, I again, I, I grew up um, and still I spent a lot of time growing up in a small town. But I, again, I don't think you sort of notice things uh, such as the dynamic of social dynamics of small towns when you're when you're young and. And I think that, you know, at one, at one, on, on one hand, the town will surround you and be there and protect you, and you will have your, your friends, if something terrible happens, um, instantly there uh, in, a, in a way that, um, you know, is, is like a, a safety blanket. On the other hand, there are points in grieving, I believe, when you just don't want to always be reminded of it. And, 
and in a small town, you just you simply can't get away from the fact that everyone knows everything about you. If you live in Manhattan and something terrible has, ha- has happened to you, you can certainly go out um, somewhere and be among people who have no idea. And you could just not necessarily forget, but just have it not be right there at the forefront of everyone's minds for a moment. And that's just not necessarily the case in a town where people um, know you so well. But uh, on the other hand, you know, I remember the day that, uh, as it was described to me, as, you know, by Mike and, and other folks, and when the day that it happened, the day that his, um, the morning, the morning after his son was killed, everyone, uh, as people were hearing about it, they all went to Guinan. That's just everyone knew to go there, and of course, that's also where Mike went um, that same morning. And it, he walked in, and you know, there wasn't much to say, but uh, you know, there were just strong male hands put on his shoulders, and people just standing beside him, and you know. That, that kind of sense of um, the sense that, that a son dying before, before his father is so wrong and so not right that what do you say? But the simple gesture of them being beside him that morning, that is where he went to seek comfort. Uh, and, I, and I think that says quite a bit. As I read about this remarkable place and the, also the drama which is uh, with us through the book of, of whether or not this place can survive and what needs to happen and and, and what plays out uh, there and kind of behind the scenes and, and your sense of, 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 of sort of a desperate hope for, for guidance to remain open and as it was. I, I kind of wonder, uh, is Guinan's, uh I mean, we've talked about how there are other small places like this all across the country, and yet, boy, it's, it also seems like in some ways there was a unique magic about Guinan's because of the particular people who were there, Jim behind the bar, and this particular array of customers that we might go into a small place in some little town in Nebraska, and it might not at all have this same wonderful atmosphere and flavor. Right. right. What's uh, your thought about that? I think it's a little of, of both, and by that what I mean is that I think Guinan's is, is absolutely unique. Um, I wouldn't have probably written a book about it otherwise, and that uh, you have all these uh, you have a perfect storm of, of incredible things happening there from, you know, the survival of uh, a small town, small business that, that, that shouldn't necessarily be alive in our age of Walmart and Starbucks to a family that uh, is pulling together despite their differences to keep this place alive, three generations of people doing that um, when, when they, they, they have no monetary incentive really to do so. It's not like anyone's getting, getting rich running the place, but, but simply for the love of the place. And you have these remarkable characters coming in and out of there uh, who, who, who make it, again, their home, and who also, when the place, um, as, as it's described in the book in, in a couple places, who, when the fate of the place is hanging in the balance, become a human duct tape of some sort to help hold it together. And so I think that that confluence of, of things makes it unique and remarkable and it's setting on the Hudson River right across from West Point and a very historical place and just 50 miles from uh, the metropolis of Manhattan all of that the confluence of all of that makes it makes an incredible story um, and which is why I wanted to tell it mm. what I do want to say though and to you know because a lot of people have traveled to Guyana since the book has come out and um, from all over the the country and, and in some cases overseas to, to meet this family because they they're very struck and think they're very special yet I've also had people say to me that when they go back they're seeing the small places in their own towns with fresh eyes and uh, I think that that's that's 
wonderful, and, and I, I love hearing that because what it means is that even if you never make it to Guinan's in your life, you know, perhaps if you learn about it from this book or some other ways, it'll it'll open your eyes to something that you might have never seen in your own in your own community. And uh, you know, we spend so much time squared away in our houses watching a hundred billion plus cable channels and and you know, spending all our time online that we just. We don't see each other face-to-face as much as we used to. And um, I don't think I ever really thought much about doing that until I was here. And it, you, you were missing out. We're really missing out. And, again, it's not because technology should go away. We, ha- we need both. But, uh, again, I, I hope, if anything, that this book will inspire people to kind of get out and seek those places where they can look people in the eye and, and shake their hand again. This is, of course, also a book about... Um the, the the journey you made in, in making a choice not just of where to live, where do I live because my apartment building has been ruined by the events of 9-11, this became a story about how to live yes. and beautifully told. The book is called Little Chapel on the River, a pub, a town, and the search for what matters most, published by Harper, its author, Gwendolyn Bounds. Gwendolyn Bounds, this is just a terrific book, start to finish, and uh, I am so appreciative of you for writing it and uh, for joining me on the morning show to uh, to talk about it. Very best wishes to you and to all those who make Guinan such a special place. Greg, thanks for this conversation. Thanks, too, to your listeners.